Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. And the Lord be with you, everyone. And I want to continue with this series of messages on radical grace. It appears to be finding a place in many of you. Thank you for your emails and communications encouragement to keep on with this. Okay, it's in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And it's one of those passages that the truth is people quote it, but I don't think they've ever read it. You know, somebody came up with what it meant, I don't know how long ago, and no one ever challenged, no one ever looked to what the Scripture said. So with that, um, let me read from Second Corinthians and chapter 12. And in verse 7, he says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in need, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, there is a lot that could be said about this that I'm not going to say simply because we don't have the time but I want to look at this head on. If you read the context, and actually the context could take in most of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is, is dealing with what he would call false apostles. They were upstarts. These fellows who traveled through the various churches and areas of the New Testament and they made big boasts, big claims, and they were always putting down the true apostles and especially did they put down Paul because of his stand against legalism and against all that the religion that had come up through the Pharisees and had now come inside the gospel preaching. And so these people hated Paul. They hated the gospel of the grace of God, and they would follow Paul. When he left, they would show up, and their attitude was, well, this Paul chap, I don't know much about him, I mean, what 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 has he had to give him the authority to speak? Where did he get this gospel from? Last I heard, he was a persecutor of the Church of Christ. Some apostle, isn't that? Now, let me give you my resume. And they began to give everything that they claimed to be, claimed to have their perfect lives. Paul? Well, not so perfect, is it? He's No one seems to like him, do they? In this city he goes, they stone him. In this one, they throw him in jail. And so on and so on. That's the context. 
And, and Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you, you, you fellows, did, do you want me to join this gang of apes and start boasting? You want me to boast about all that I am and fling my resume around? Well, I'll boast. If that's what you want, I'll boast. Now, that's the atmosphere of this. He, he's being very sarcastic. He's saying, boast? I'll tell you what I'll boast in. I'll boast in my weaknesses. Now, isn't that a different tone? All these other chaps coming through, they, they portray themselves as supermen. They never have a weakness. They're smiling all the time. There's never any trouble. Isn't it wonderful? We're triumphant, and so on and so on. Well, he says, I'm afraid it isn't like that with me. He said, I, I know what weakness is. Oh, it's over against the exalted visions of the glory of God that I've seen. If you want me to boast, I'll boast about that, I suppose. But... No, I met a thorn in the flesh. And that's what it comes... He's boasting now, but he begins his... Bo and mind you, sarcastically, he thinks he's... He calls himself, I'm a fool for doing this. But if this is what you want, I'll tell you what I boast in. And so this passage is about what he boasts in. And he says he had exalted visions. And then he says this, that he calls the messenger of Satan shows up. And he describes the messenger of Satan as a thorn in the flesh. Now, the whole issue with, I'll have to say, millions of believers is what is this thorn in the flesh? What is it? And... The general position of a very large sector of the church is that Paul was sick. And he was not only sick and diseased, disabled, but he was sick, disabled over a long period of time. So this thing carted around with him the whole time. Well, the truth is, and I mean this, I have studied this passage for 60 years. I don't know where they get that from. I mean, they have to go to some extent of saying that the light that shone on the Damascus Road blinded him, and so he was half blind the rest of his life. Well, that doesn't fit, because in Acts chapter 9, it says God healed him of that, and the scales fell off his eyes. But it's interesting, the people who say that this thorn is sickness are those who do not believe in God's healing power. So, of course, it, this is a great way out. We've got a thorn in the flesh, you see. And, and so when we're sick, what is my thorn in the flesh? I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Has anybody, I throw the challenge out, has anybody that says this is sickness. Have you ever read the Old Testament? I know it's a tough thing to read the Old Testament sometimes, but theologians, you ought to have read the Old Testament. You ought to have gotten inside the mind of the Hebrew people to think as they think instead of thinking as Westerners think. Uh, how, how, what? Thorn in the flesh. That's an odd phrase to us Westerners. But it wasn't an odd phrase to the Hebrews. They used that phrase. Ever noticed it? Back in the Old Testament, they used that phrase for a very specific purpose. Okay, uh, I'm just throwing this out to you. In Joshua 23 and verse 13, and also <clears throat> a near parallel to that is Judges chapter 2. And he is speaking, God speaks to Israel of the Canaanite nations, all those who hated the purposes of God and were attacking in every which way they possibly could, sometimes with words and accusations and insults and sneers. 
other times with downright uh, pornographic temptations in their face, at other times downright trying to destroy them in many ways. But these Canaanite nations in Joshua 23, 13, Judges chapter 2, the Lord says they, those people who hate the purpose of God, they shall be snares to you. They will be traps. Watch them. Watch them. They're they're trying to trick you. They're trying to catch you in their traps. They shall be a scourge in your side. Like a knife in your side. They will be thorns in your eyes. I know we don't talk like that here in the West, but they did in the Old Testament, if you've ever read it. It's there. It says that these people, antagonistic to the purpose of God, they were out to catch Israel, to snare them, to trap them. And the Lord says, living alongside of them, have them follow you into your villages and towns. They'll be like a scourge, a knife in your side. They'll be like thorns in your eyes. Hmm. And of course, Paul, as a Pharisee, had memorized the entire Old Testament. So it's not a surprise that he would come up with an Old Testament phrase to describe what was happening to him. But try this for size. Ezekiel 28 and verse 24, he says that the pricking briar. Now, that's what's a pricking briar? I know you city folk wouldn't know, but if you're out in the country and you get into the thorn bushes, sometimes we call them briar bushes, and the thorns, they stick in your side. Pricking briar. A painful thorn that comes from those around you who despise you. Well, you get the picture. Paul is using an Old Testament expression to describe persons who do not acknowledge the purposes of God, do not delight in his ways or his inheritance, hate the people of God, despise them, And there in those scriptures, we could pursue them, but I think it's enough. It's talking about people, people that are like thorns in your side, even thorns, scourges in your side and eyes. And all the time they're trying to trap you. That's exactly what this whole passage is about. These persons who followed Paul, who intersected his work and tried to trap his converts ensnare them into legalism and religion, Pharisee. And Paul called this, to begin with, I emphasize that, to begin with, he called this a messenger of Satan. And you might note he doesn't say it's a messenger of God. It's a messenger of Satan. There's nothing God about this. Nothing God about this. And he said this messenger of Satan... Satan, that's an untranslated word. If we translated Satan, it means the accuser. Accuser. That's it. The accuser. You know, it, it, it calls him in Revelation, the accuser of the brethren. I think everyone has heard the voice of the accuser. Number one, the accuser always, always says something negative about you and speaks inside your thoughts so that you think it's you thinking. Or as Ephesians 6 calls it, like flaming arrows that come shooting at you and set your whole brain on fire. You're no good. You'll never amount to anything. That, that's, that's basic. That's sort of foundational. But goes on. Boy, you sure just made a fool of yourself, didn't you? Well, if I were you, I'd never open my mouth again. They're probably all laughing about you now. 
on and on the voice of the accuser and it's coming in and it's like a knife and it's like a thorn you get it the messenger of satan but specifically it came from the religious who followed paul around well that fits in perfectly with what jesus said in john chapter 8 what is it verse 44 when he called the pharisees of your father the devil so all of the accusations that came and then he says this messenger of satan this onslaught these demons on assignment that had found a willing lodging place in the religious who followed paul around paul says they buffet the messenger say to buffets me and that in plain english it means slaps my face punches me in the jaw spits in my face everything that goes with insults Strangely, of course, there's nothing there about being sick. But it, it's, it's, it describes the picture of someone who's being exhausted by an onslaught of untrue words, words that put you down, words that despise you. And if you're not careful, you'll fall into it and, and, and define yourself by the trouble you're in. You'll be snared in it. It was there, thorn in the flesh, thorn in the flesh. And of course, when we say flesh, I think if you've read the New Testament, that takes in the entire mortality of myself. It's not just my flesh. My flesh is my entire person, as it would attempt to be independent of God. And so it's my thought life, it's my imagination life, it's my intellectual life, as well as my glands and organs and hormones and bones and arteries and my flesh, my mortality. Paul says that in, in my flesh, if that's where I was going to live, he said that that's where it's coming, it's, that's where it's coming. Now, one last thing on this, and it's very important we're doing this, um, he, he, it's this little passage, and, and you know the word therefore. Have we been around each other long enough for that? Therefore. Whenever you come to the word therefore in the scripture, it's a summation word. It's sort of if it was mathematics, you'd draw the line and now add up everything that you've said so far, this is the sum. And so it is saying, therefore, in the light of everything I've just said, Everything I've just been talking about, this is my conclusion. Okay. He starts talking about thorn in the flesh, messenger of Satan to buffet him, slap his face, punch him in the mouth. Now, verse 10, he's summing it up. He's going to leave the subject now. So he says in verse 10, therefore, in the light of all this, and what? What has been the subject? What is the subject we're going to look at? How do you deal with the thorn in the flesh? How do you deal with the messenger of Satan? And he's given his answer here. So now he says, therefore, therefore, I take pleasure. So whatever he's just said, beginning with the problem, thorn in the flesh, the problem, messenger of Satan, his answer is that I now take pleasure in thorn in the flesh. I take pleasure in messenger of Satan. But how does he put it there? Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, all for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, the word infirmity. And some of my friends who do not read dictionaries immediately let me see that sickness. No, it isn't. The word in the Greek language literally means strengthless. It would be weakness, frailty. What would, it would be vulnerability of any kind 
It means I find myself in a vulnerable position. I, I find myself and I feel so very weak. I, I feel I can't handle this. You see, I've got nothing to draw from. Weak, vulnerable. Have you ever felt it? You feel so human, so creature. You're frail. That's what the word means. He's, he's saying situations show up in life. And as soon as the situation arrives, you open the email, you tear open the letter, you receive the phone call, you have that conversation and it, you can almost feel strength sapping away from you. You feel in your mind, you don't know what to do now. You feel almost like a little child. Your emotions, you'd like to cry if you dare. Your body sometimes can tremble and shake and just total weakness, strengthless. So that's the first way he defines what he's been talking about. Thorn in the flesh, weakness, vulnerability. Then he says, take pleasure in reproaches. That word in much plainer English is insults. And insults can be verbal. It's what you call people when you're not in control of your tongue. It's, it's, it's demeaning people. It's, it's treading on people. It's mistreating people. It's being malicious. It's what people do to other people. It's what the people had been doing to Paul. Ever had that? When people, especially those that you thought just might be with you, and they say those things about you. Then he says, still defining what thorn in the flesh is, he says, in needs. Now, quite honestly, that is a very weak word to translate what the Greek language is there. The word need or you could, in some versions, call it distresses, which actually is a better translation. But need or distress, it means, literally, get this, it means to have your hands tied behind your back. We even use that expression. There's nothing I could do. My hands were tied behind my back. I, I couldn't do anything. I was helpless. In the Old Testament, the word means a canyon that you're walking through and the sides are getting narrower and narrower until your ears are touching either side. It's claustrophobia. I can't do anything. I can't even turn around. And it's only getting worse. Distress, needs, helpless. And persecution, well, that speaks for itself. When the venom of Satan is spewed out, upon the children of God. Well, you see, there it is. Suddenly I feel very much at home here. This has happened to me. This has happened to me. Paul, Paul never saw this as, as something that was, you know, to make him holy. Um... His response, his first response is, he said, three times I asked the Lord to remove it. Remove it. Get rid of this. this is, if I was in the will of God, I wouldn't get rid of this. Get rid of this. See, and of course, the people who say that sickness, they really, it's so foolish. Religion is so foolish. The person says, my thorn in the flesh. And they sit there with all the medicines they can get from the doctor sitting beside them. What, what, what are the medicines there to get rid of the thorn in the flesh? And why would you do that? It's a gift from God. I have to take your medicines and flush them down the toilet so you can be holy. Oh, how ridiculous. No, no, no. 
he is saying, when the insults pour, when I face these situations and I feel absolutely helpless, I feel life is crushing in on me. I find everybody in the world seems to be against me. I feel like Elijah sometimes. I, only I, am left. Does anybody else even care about your purposes? It seems every person that has anything to say is against the beautiful love, grace, purposes of God. Oh Lord, take this away. Shut their mouths. Deliver me from the hands of this people. Take it away. An exhausted believer. I'm overwhelmed. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. This situation, it's unwanted. So, what do you do when uh, it looks like the devil, doesn't it? I mean, oh, surely only the devil. It's got to be the devil doing all of this through his willing henchmen, these Pharisee slash would-be Christians. I mean, surely this is the devil, a messenger of Satan, and he's slapping my face. I'm not getting anywhere. My response to this sort of stuff is spiritual warfare. Yes, go against Satan. Lord, take him away. Take him out. Get rid of him. You know, so much of that reaction, response, is because of fear. Let's face it. I mean, just you and I. Let's face it. We are afraid of creature weakness. I mean, weakness by itself is bad enough, but we are afraid of creature weakness. We despise it. We hate ourselves for being weak. We, we hide. We, we put on masks. We put on a brave face. We whistle in the dark and all the other stuff. Um, We'll even talk big as if, oh, this stupid little thing that happened, and all the time we're quivering inside. We, we are afraid that anybody would ever see that we are weak, that we're frail. The idea of being vulnerable, I'm weak, and other people know it, and there's nothing I can do about it. It's terrifying. We... we we avoid, we'll do anything. We'll move to another country to avoid being found weak. We run away from events that would show up our weakness. We build walls between us and people that would expose our weakness. Yeah, we're afraid of it. That's why we get so angry at being weak. And have you noticed when you feel weak, you lash out even at those you love? You're so afraid that anybody would find out that you're weak. And even if we don't go that far, it dribbles over our mouth in complaining. We complain about the life that's making us feel weak. We complain about the people we'll... And if we can gossip or slander the people, all the better. We feel like a victim of our weakness. And so we say, Lord, take it away. This can't be your will that I feel like this. This must be Satan winning over me. Take it away, take it away. And he said three times, which would be much the same as our English expression again and again. Take it away. So I stand and I look at my day and I realize it's like walking through a briar patch. It's full of thorns and I complain and I whine to God. I'm upset. I'm a grouch. Yeah. It must be the devil. So God, get me out of this. Change my circumstances. Make it all go away. That was Paul. And he is giving a biographical account of where he was at. But then something happened. 
of a magnitude that would change his life forever. This life-changing revelation. That, and I mean that quite literally, as I said, because this that happened to him here shows up in other epistles. Though he doesn't directly refer us back here. In Philippians, he says that I have learned, I was initiated into the great secret. And he speaks of this time, speaks of it as a moment that changed everything. And there's many other things that he says that has reference back here. He saw something. No, it wasn't a matter of getting rid of it. It wasn't a matter of going to war with Satan with loud bellows of triumph. No, no, no. No. The life-changing revelation. The life-changing new view of things to see things as God saw them. And that meant a total mind, way of thinking, imagination, renewal. Totally. It's going to affect how you conduct spiritual warfare. I, I believe in spiritual warfare. I, I'm, totally. But I, over the years, continually come to realize spiritual warfare has more to do with my relationship with God, more to do with how I know He thinks of me and how I think of Him, and to rest in Him and hide in Him much more than putting in my spurs and going to fight Satan. Paul said in Philippians 1, to ignore your adversary. That, that can so frustrate the powers of darkness when you are so taken up with the glory of God, the finality of the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and who you are in Christ, seated in heavenly places, that you have little time to scream at the devil. So, what, would, what he came to see was, this is not what you are seeing, Paul, you're seeing this as if I'm not around. You're seeing this as if this is it. This is your life. You are defined by a thorn. You're defined by these men that would make your life a living hell. I say you define yourself and you're complaining and you're complaining to God. No. This that happens to you is a door into the grace of God as you have not realized the grace before. This is the opportunity of grace. It's something, if you've read C.S. Lewis, this is something like the wardrobe. That when you go into the wardrobe, you'll come out into another dimension. Something like that. That you're looking at this, you're looking at what people are saying and what people are doing and you're looking at events that have the fingerprints of Satan all over them. And the Lord said, haven't you realized my grace is sufficient? My grace is sufficient. Sufficient to overwhelm frustrate to silence this messenger of Satan. Get your eyes off the messenger of Satan, Paul. Even get your eyes off the thorn. I know how annoying it is, but get your eyes off that and start delighting in my grace, which is sufficient. We don't deny the events that are happening. Christians are super realists. But we don't define ourselves by them. We don't define ourselves anymore by human weakness. You see, that's the point. I am not Malcolm Smith, period. I'm not. I was. But then I was united 
with Jesus by the Holy Spirit in a final and absolute sense so that I now define myself, I see my identity as in Christ and Christ in me and I cannot define myself without saying that. Paul, you're not defined by a messenger of Satan. You're not defined by insults and distresses and narrow canyons and hands behind your back. Yeah, that's not your definition. You are defined by the grace of God. Let me very quickly say in this context what we've already discovered, that the grace is the personal active presence of the Holy Spirit bringing to us all that the Father speaks of us, desires for us, knows us truly to be in and through Jesus. The grace enlightens. Grace turns on all the lights and shows me the truth about myself. Lesson until last week, Grace sobers me up to to begin thinking without the drug of the lies and accusations of Satan. And whatever the Holy Spirit shows me, that showing is not just putting on show, but actually empowers me, enables me to be the person God the Father says I am in Christ. I'm empowered by grace. Grace elevates me to dizzy heights to know who I truly am, to know my true identity, seated with Christ in deep heaven, looking down far below upon defeated powers of darkness. And that grace authorizes me to walk into this world being who I am. Grace. In the grace of God, I see God's purpose. I see who I am. It takes my breath away. I need divine authorization to dare to believe it's true. To be empowered to be that. And it's not just once in a lifetime, you know, a sort of second blessing. It says grace upon grace, grace upon grace, like the ever-coming waters of the ocean. Grace upon grace, ever-flowing, continual, continual action of covenant love, of peace, of kindness, of goodness, of strength in my life, and custom-made for this specific moment. Oh, yeah. Grace. And he says, my grace is sufficient. That's a big word. It means enough. That means relax. Enough. Grace. The illumination of grace, the power of grace that is now being infused into you in this situation, is enough. Doesn't matter what anyone says, grace is more than what they said. Doesn't matter what they're doing. Doesn't matter that your natural self says, my hands are tied behind my back. Laugh at them. Grace unties your hands. Grace sets you free. Grace puts strength in those arms. Grace makes you more than you appear to be. You're not defined by being just a mortal, frail creature. You are a mortal, frail creature indwelt by Jesus Christ, revealed to you now by grace. You're not limited by your frail humanity. Your limitations go unendingly into the ascended Christ. thorn in the flesh, messenger of Satan. The word that comes immediately to mind when I say that is impossible. I mean, they've got me wrapped up. It's impossible. I I face an impossible situation. And it's, it's, I think, very 
I don't have to think about it. There's enough people watching me right now that I don't know how many of you would define your present moment as impossible. And what people are saying about you is not nice. Oh yeah, impossible. But you see, says the Lord to to Paul, your impossible is the actual doorway into my possible. The end of your rope is the beginning of my chain. (laughs) Everything changes. I've come into a totally new world where everything is gloriously backwards. When I am weak, then I am strong. Now work that one out. Sufficient. Sufficient. And you see, the sufficiency that came to us from heaven in Jesus Christ is infinitely more than what we call sufficient. I I was raised um, at a very bad time in British history in London during World War II, after World War II, which was maybe worse yet. There was no money and there was no food. And, and I learned a vocabulary. And I, I'm sure many of you older folk uh, will remember the vocabulary of the Depression. Do you remember? And it, it spilled over and it got into many people's thought life. So, you know, well, I, it will be sufficient. Meaning, I've got a potato on my plate. Well, it's sufficient, you see. And sufficient. Be sad. How many times I heard my grandmother be, be thankful for small things. Be thankful for small things. Clear your plate. Even though there's hardly anything on the plate, clear the plate. Even if you hate it, clear your plate. You won't be getting another one for a while. And you, you grew up with that. Sufficient meant not quite enough. But we've got to be thankful for small things. We've got to be thankful if there's just one piece of broccoli on the plate along with half a potato. Don't, no complaints. That's sufficient. That will carry you through. Sufficient. Oh, Lord. Will you burn that dictionary? That dictionary has nothing to do, A, with the English language, but B, certainly not with biblical language. When God says sufficient, he goes overboard. Sufficient. Sufficient, it means, well, as I said, enough. It means there's not a nook or cranny of the situation that is not overflowing with the power, the ability, the wisdom, the creativity, the insight to handle this. Adequate. That means you, you, you have absolutely no area of need. It's, it's adequate. It means nothing lacking. It's that word we've discussed elsewhere, filled with the fullness of God, Ephesians 3, what is it, 20, filled. And that word in the Greek language means to be crammed full. It was used to describe a net that was so crammed full of fish, the jolly thing was breaking and there was still fish tails hanging over the side, filled you filled with the fullness and that word is is in the same family it means filled till you can fill no more so nothing lacking enough adequate filled to the full well i tell you jesus illustrated what he meant by enough enough means you do not have another need in this area But rather, you've got so much now to share with everybody who might have similar. You do not have enough until you have enough to give away. Write that on your refrigerator. That's biblical sufficient. 
Look, Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, 15,000 people altogether. He fed them. You remember, there are five loaves, two fishes. Well, and it says they all ate until they had enough. Well, what was enough? Enough was that the 12 disciples are coming back down the aisles with these enormous baker baskets overflowing with leftovers. That's enough. That's enough. It isn't that you just had enough to take away the pain. No, this means you stuffed yourself until there was nothing but left. Twelve baker baskets overflowing. That was enough. You never, God's enough is that you have absolute adequate answer to your immediate present need and then so much overflowing that you bless others with that with which you've been blessed and of course that when he turned the water into wine it's the same thing the feast was it was hard there's half a week to go and he turned water and and you remember in in your king james it's <laughs> bless king james heart uh, he says they're, they're filled with 12 fir- firkins apiece. Firkins? Firkins? What's a firkin? Look, it says the six water parts, all those firkins, translate that into modern, and it meant 180 gallons of wine. Jesus turned water into that. Every time Jesus does something, you want to say, that's too much. No, that's only as humans look at it. His too much is normal for him. Normal. And we have quoted this scripture more than once, but it's speaking in the, I mean, you don't have to turn your page. It's right there in, in chapter 9 of Second Corinthians. And let me read it to you as I've read it for the last two weeks. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. There are more words in that one sentence of abundance and overflowing and surpassing it. And it ends up by saying you'll have such an abundance of grace, you'll have enough for every blessing to others. This is the grace of God. And what does that look like? It looks so ordinary, you really don't realize it's happened until you're into it or even after it. The peace of God that comes. And the joy of the Lord within the peace the strength to face the moment, the wisdom, if necessary, of exactly what to do, creativity, if it's going to take you where you've never gone before, above all, the presence of the Holy Spirit leading you in it and through it. In fact, that is where where he ends. He, he says that, um, where, let me read it, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that rest upon me, it's a word describing the presence of God enveloping you. It's, what can I say? As the Israelites walked within that cloud of God's presence that was fire by night, So, he says, the presence of Christ rests upon me. I'm enveloped in his presence. Or you could say that he is saying there is a hiding place in the middle of everything that's happening. There is a place within me where I am at home, my abiding place, my secret place, my hiding place, my habitation. I am dwelling inside the very person of Jesus who dwells inside the person of the Father, the Holy Spirit making it all so real. The immediate personal presence of Jesus in us, around us, over us, under us, through the Holy Spirit. 
Another translation is that Jesus himself has pitched a tent over me. That would mean Jesus has become closer to me than the thorn. And it means that the messenger of Satan's words just bounce off the tent of the presence of God. And he's enabling me from within. I'm being succored. I am being enabled, strengthened from within. My weakness, my limitation has become, I say again, the doorway into this limitless world where I live, yet not I, it is Christ who lives in me. And then he said, Therefore I take pleasure. That's, that's interesting. I take pleasure in infirmities. He said, when things show up that threaten my mortal self to remind me I'm a creature and weak and I don't know what to do and my hands are tied behind me and so on. He said, I, I don't start, oh God, take it away. I don't stand there at the beginning of the days and it's going to be one of those days. No, he says, I take pleasure. He's saying, oh, another door has shown up. Another wardrobe that I can walk into another greater, more glorious dimension of the presence of Jesus than I've ever had before. This word pleasure actually um, was used, certainly uh, a good deal of the time, as a food word. It meant um, what you were eating or drinking was sweet. That's, that's the word. And it, it was a word that describes that the food was so sweet or delicious to your taste that you delighted in it. You ate it with great relish. Or as we would say in some parts of the world, he ate it with gusto. Yes. <laughs> the, and this is the important thing, the opposite of this word then is bitter. It means that food or drink that uh, creases your face. It's on the ugh. It, it's, it's bitter. It, you, you might even go as far as spitting it out. You'd certainly send it back if you're in the restaurant. That, that's the word that we're using here. Paul says... This is, this is life as it comes before me. And I see it immediately. Oh yes, I hear it's an insult, but I see through it. This is another doorway. This is another reception of grace that is enough for this situation. I've got a track record of the grace of God being enough and adequate for every situation. But this one? This is going to be a new one. Do you see what he's saying? In the Old Testament, this expression, um, take pleasure, it, it meant jubilant exaltation. This is not just a weak smile, saying, well, we better get on with this one. This is, and I'm quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, um, the jubilant exaltation. It means let us rejoice and be glad. That's the be glad. It's, it's a be gladness from the depth of my spirit, joining with dancing, rejoicing. And yes, uh, another one, and this spills over into the New Testament where it says, be exceeding glad, glad beyond all limitations. Um, I, I just look at this. We're talking about this, this this miracle, and it is nothing short of miracle. Look, believer, I, I'm still in the learning process, and I mean that. If you are one of our partners, you probably by now have heard of the 
what shall I say? The afflictions that we've been going through in these last weeks, months. And um, I, I would say I am speaking to you right out of the heart of this. This isn't something I studied in an ivory tower. This is something that I have over the decades and as never before over the last weeks learned by experience and am in process of learning and discovering ever more increasingly that this is, this is so, it is so. That as the trouble comes, as the pressure comes, and it's like a thorn in your side, it's like a briar bush that holds you back, and your, your feeling is, oh no, not again, why can't we get on? And you feel it drawing you back. At that time, you retire to your true self, what did he say? When I am weak, then I am strong. He says, if I look at my natural self, if I look at my vulnerability as just a human being, then I would have to talk weakness. But he said, I retire beyond that. That is who I am. I am a creature, but I retire Beyond that, to my central self, my true self, my essential self, where I am strong. And that strong is grace strong. It's gift strong. It's Holy Spirit strong. I live. Yet, it's not just I, who in this situation would be very weak. It's not I. It is Christ who lives in me. And for me to live is Christ. It's a matter of realizing. It's a matter of acting within life and not reacting to it. You know what I mean? Stuff happens. As I say, you open the email and your life fell apart. He said this and she said that and... And so often we react to that. That is, we're thinking and pursuing thoughts before we had a chance to even realize what was happening. At such a time, be still and realize, recognize that grace is. And that the presence of Jesus is, 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 is all around you. And that in that inner self, your true self, recognize, realize, give thanks to God for your I am strong. That's who you is. Now see, don't go rushing into tomorrow and say, well, if that happens, if that happens, and I'm overwhelmed today because of what? No, no, no is, now, am, I am strong, for Christ is around me and in me, and I cannot be defined apart from my relationship to him. When I am weak, then, in this mystery of the goodest news you've ever heard, then I am strong. How am I strong? Because Jesus Christ is quietly, actually infusing his life into me. But infusing into me so that it is me. It's the only me that the Father recognizes. The me who for me to live is Christ. It's me, it's me, it's Malcolm in the mirror. But it's more. It's Christ in Malcolm for now and for unto ages upon ages upon ages. I say learn. Learn to do that. We've been trained to go rushing into the future that doesn't even exist yet. And therefore, there's no grace for that which doesn't exist. 
is grace now. What is happening? What's here on your plate? And you be who you are and you give thanks to God that you have that habitation, that abiding, not by struggle or not by so many acts of dedication, but because of his one act of love dedication in that he took you to himself. And when you woke up in new birth, you discovered you're already there in Christ and Christ in you. So now be who you are, be where you are, give thanks to God and receive his peace in which you receive his wisdom. That's grace. Grace sufficient, grace abundant. The strength of God himself in the vulnerability that I find myself in today. Well, there it is. I trust that um, this not only blesses you, but infuses you with strength and enough to share it with others who are struggling in life. And now the blessing, the blessing, the grace, the favor of God who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, His gracious blessing be in you, around you, under you, behind you, and drawing you on ahead of you, that you shall live a life that radiates His light and His love and His love. So I now bless you where you are. And that's the way it is, all because of Jesus. Amen.